good morning. Uh, this morning's scripture reading is from John, the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. Uh, it's on pages 1056 in the Blue Bible and sorry, 889 in the Black Bibles, if you'll take that and read along with me. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for all the blessings you give to us, God, for living in a free land. And God, I pray that we do not take this freedom for granted and that we give you all the glory and honor that your name deserves and that we worship you in spirit and in truth. I just thank you, praise you, and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I was chatting with a friend of mine from church, and he said that he was reading in his devotional, and uh, in the devotional he said that every week a pastor prepares a term paper to share on Sunday morning. So... I'm going to share my term paper with you, but hopefully it's not as boring as the term papers I have written in the past. And fortunately, you're not seeing the paper because my grammar and punctuation is terrible. Uh, But we trust that the Lord will communicate in the power of his spirit as we strive to proclaim the word. So ultimately, hopefully, we all hear from God this morning. If you remember last week in our chapter that was a pretty rough chapter, and it talked about some pretty rough content, when uh, Dinah was defiled, there was no mention of God. In our passage today, there is lots of mention of God as God reveals himself to Jacob and calls him to worship. And so today what I want to focus on is really the main, main theme of our passage is that God has always called his people to worship him in spirit and truth. And so today we, as Chris read for us in John 4, the words of the Lord Jesus that we are called to worship in spirit and in truth. And God's call to worship has to do with real life. And God's people are continually called out to worship him, the faithful God. In our passage today, God calls Jacob to worship even though Jacob's family continually struggled to be unfaithful, to sin, and even worship false gods. Friends, if you hear the voice of God, do not harden your heart. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the tremendous privilege I have to to proclaim your word to your people. Lord, if there's anyone here that has yet to come to faith in the Lord Jesus, I pray that your spirit would do the work that only your spirit can do to awaken the heart, to lead someone to believe. Lord, I pray whatever state we're in right now, that we would leave this place this morning more equipped to worship you in spirit and truth. So Lord, I pray that you'd help these stumbling lips, keep me from opinion, and help me rightly proclaim your word in the power of your spirit, pointing to your son, the Lord Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. I found a quote this week. Worship has to do with real life. It's not just a mythical interlude in a week of reality. 
This is a quote by John Piper. All of the Bible is a call to worship, and for the Christian, all of life is a call to worship in and through faithful obedience, remembering the goodness of God in Christ. So once again, let's look at Genesis. Our passage today is 35 and 36. We won't read chapter 36. It's, it's mainly a list of Esau's descendants. We'll focus more on chapter 35. So I'm going to go ahead and read Genesis 35 in its entirety. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all their foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the Tebereth tree that was near Shechem. And they journeyed. A terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. He and all his people were with him. And there he built an altar and called it El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he is called it the name of Elon Bakoth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came to Padan Aran and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob no longer shall your name be Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land of your offspring after you. And God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up an altar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out drink offering on it, and he poured on it oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Then he journeyed from Bethel, where they were still some distance from Ephrath. Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. When her laborer was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as for her soul was departing, for she was dying. She called his name Benoiah, but his father called him Benjamin. So Benjamin died, and she was buried on the way of Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Adar. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Billah, his father's concubine. And Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Billah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servants, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padah and Aran. 
And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, at Kirath Arda, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last breath, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. So we're coming to a transition. The, the, re, the remaining of the book of Genesis will focus humanly on Joseph, which is, is really brilliant how God put this story together because we really end the book of G Genesis on a high note. Joseph is a much better example of godly character than these characters we've seen. And yet even through all the sin and unfaithfulness, God continues to accomplish his redemptive work. He is such a kind, benevolent, gracious God that he continues to carry out his work of redemption even in and through his people who are not always faithful. And that should continue to be a great encouragement to us. In Genesis 36, um, we read of Esau's descendants. And so real quickly, I want to just go over, because there's so much content in this, a basic outline of Genesis 35 um, that I got the framework from this uh, from a commentary. In verse 1, we see the divine call to go to Bethlehem. It's good for us to remember that true worship is always initiated by God. There's, there's a, little, a lot of a misunderstanding in even Christianity that somehow we muster up worship and we kind of make it happen. But in actuality, as you study the scriptures, and I think Isaiah 6 is the clearest example of this, is that God initiates worship. True worship is is initiated by God as he reveals himself. And we see this in verse 1. Verses 2 through 8, we see Jacob's obedience. When God reveals himself, the right response is always humble obedience. It is absolute foolishness to call God the Lord of our life and ever say no to him. And yet, as God's people, as we've seen in Genesis, this was a constant struggle for them. Here, Jacob gets it right. God reveals himself Jacob responds in obedience. In verses 9 through 12, we see the reaffirmation of the promise. God continues to remind his people of his promises. We saw something happen in Genesis 12, and we've seen that carried out through the entire book and really throughout the entire Bible. The reaffirmation of the promise we see in verses 9 through 12. In verses 13 through 15, we see Jacob's worship at Bethel. God had revealed himself. He had reminded Jacob and called him to worship. So Jacob did as the Lord instructed. Verses 16 through 20, we see the birth of Benjamin, the death and burial of Rachel. Life continues on. Sometimes we're tempted to think when tragedy happens in our life that somehow God stops. But all through the scriptures and all through our lives, we see that God continues to carry on his work through life, death, real life. So Benjamin is born, Rachel died and is buried. Verses 21 through 22a, we see Reuben's shameful act. We continue to see the struggle with God's people, the patriarch's children, and the patriarchs with himself of their unfaithfulness. We see all kinds of gross sexual sin. Jacob's son commits sexual sin. And this is a reminder to us, after Genesis 3, there's always going to be trouble. And that's the beauty of heaven. One of the many beauties is like, there's not going to be any of this. There's no going to be no giving in to temptation. It's going to be pure, perfect worship in the presence of God. But on this side of Genesis 3, and on this side of the new heavens and new earth, this is a reality. 
It's a sobering, difficult reality of the pervasiveness of sin and the depravity of man on display. And one of the many wonderful things about the Bible is the Bible is not afraid to share the real picture of humanity. Like I mentioned last week, the Bible is not G-rated. It's, it's not, not even PG-13. And that's because of the depravity that our hearts are longing for the new heavens and new earth. For those of you that are doing the, the Bible reading plan, I was so excited again in Isaiah to hear about the new heavens and new earth. That's what we have to long for. But while we're still here, there are going to be shameful acts. There's going to be sin all pointing to our need for a redeemer and the hope and promise of the new heavens and new earth, which are made possible through the Lord Jesus. We read more about Jacob's sons. We see Jacob's descendants as well as Esau's in the next chapter. And then verses 27 through 29, we see the death and burial of Isaac by his two sons. Isaac dies and Jacob and Esau bury him. Friends, I want to remind you that this is not just true of Genesis, but it's true today as God's people. We are continually called to worship him in and through obedience and remembrance. It is tempting to think that the simple, profound call of God's people is worship. I've heard, I've heard people say, wow, there's going to be all kinds of singing in heaven. I'm not looking forward to it. And it's like, I mean, you don't get it. To be in the perfect presence of God where we're no longer hindered by the troubles of this earth, the pervasiveness of sin. And on this side, it's just a small foretaste. But God has always called and is always calling his people continually to worship. All through the Bible and all through life, we're called to worship him alone. This is the continual call of God's people. And for many of us, we struggle to think, well, we go to Sunday worship, but Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday is just life. All of life is worship for God's people. In your garden, working for the man, doing the laundry, it's all worship. As God's people, we're called to worship at every facet of life. And so back in verse 1, we see God's call to, Ab to Jacob to worship when he says, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Jacob had previously been called by God to worship him. He wrestled with God. And here we see a continual call to worship. It's not a new call, it's a continual call. And this is one of at least three times in this passage that we see God reveal himself to Jacob. A call to worship must include a revelation of God. Again, I, I think we get in trouble, and I've seen it in my life where Probably good-intentioned people try to muster up what worship looks like. Like, when I'm feeling it, I can worship. But you know, when I'm not feeling it, just don't worship. And we, we base worship on our emotions and what we think rather than the clear call of God. God reveals himself to Jacob. The Bible is God's revelation to us. As a pastor, I often hear people say, man, I'm just not hearing from God. And it's like, you cracked open your Bible lately? Like, that's how you hear from God. Like, you don't go to the highest mountain and do some mystical weird thing and like, somehow now I'm closer and that's not the way it works. All through the Bible, the call to worship is initiated by God. And friends, you and I are so blessed to have the scriptures, God's revelation to us. 
that equips us for every good work, specifically to worship. So true worship is initiated by God. True worship will also require forsaking something. Aaron and I were chatting this week. I, I grew up in a wonderful church and a wonderful home, but I had this weird idea that idolatry was not a problem anymore for, for people because nobody has these, well, I don't know if anybody that's ever has these statues. Well, I'm going to worship this and that. Like, there's no graven images in people's homes, not that I'm aware of. Maybe if you've got a Buddha, you probably should get rid of that. But yet what I didn't realize is idolatry is just as dangerous today as it was in Genesis in the Old Testament. I want to read a quote from my favorite seminary professor, Stuart Scott, who's just written extensively on biblical counseling, and he's just, in my opinion, a, a brilliant yet simple in his approach. And, and this is what he says about idolatry. An idol is anything that we consistently make equal to or more important than God in our attention, desire, devotion, and choices. So it's good for us regularly to say, hey, what, what do I consistently struggle to put in the place where only God belongs? And for most of us, it's probably different. But in easy, if you honestly don't know, I'll tell you how to figure it out really easy. Where do you spend your money? Where do you spend your time? And what do you think about when your mind's in neutral? And by the way, ladies, men can do that. Like we, it's, it's kind of possible for us not to think about anything. But when you are let go, if you will, when you think about where you spend your time, your affections, your resources, there's a good chance you're going to find your idol. So Jacob reminds his household and the people to put away. He says, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. And I would just encourage you, as we looked at last week, our desires are important and they're very revealing. And left unchecked, your desires and your idols will destroy your life if you are not careful. I've confessed many times... Uh, there's lots of things I struggle with, but probably my idol of choice is comfort. And what I mean by that is go home and the four kids have cleaned their room. Nobody's upset. Everybody thinks I'm wonderful. My, my wife, a newspaper wouldn't be real attractive, but like meets me at the door. Hey, hon, how can I serve you this evening? And all the emails in my inbox are flattering. Everybody thinks I'm great. I got great news from the, you know, the car repair shop that no problem with your car at all. This one's on us. You know, that's, that's my idol, comfort. I, I want peace. Not the peace that God provides. I just don't want anybody to bother me. I, just, I want bliss. But, but that's not reality. And sometimes I find myself desiring this idol of comfort and it gets in the way of what the Lord wants to teach me about his character and becoming more like the Lord Jesus. And so you and I probably do not have any literal idols in our home. But there are things that you and I need to continue to put away if we are to worship the Lord in spirit and truth. And notice how Jacob talks about purification. This is a big deal in the Old Testament. Uh, I had the privilege to go to Israel several years ago, and there was this, like, basically, as I call it, bathhouse. 
where the Jewish people would go into for some sort of ceremonially cleansing. And you see that all over the Old Testament. And for us as Christians, every time you hear the word purification, you should think about Jesus. You should think about the cross. See, because no ritual you and I can do will purify us. I will not sing for you, but there is a song. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's where our purification is. Not church attendance, not Bible reading, not money in the plate, not being religious do-gooders, not solving all the world's problems as if we could do that. But when we hear purification, we should think of the blood of Jesus. He is the one who purifies. And all these Old Testament purification rituals, all of this was ultimately pointing to the Lord Jesus who would come later. A redeemer would come. A promised one would come. We think about this problem of idolatry. Remember when Rachel got in trouble a few chapters back because she stole the household god from, her da- from Laban? She probably still had kept this. And so we need to forsake idols, not like, well, I'll just set it on the back shelf. No, get rid of it. In the, in the Old Testament, you see things like smash the, the Asherah poles and all this, getting rid of them. Don't flirt with this stuff. We need to forsake them. If we are to worship in spirit and truth, there are things that we need to get rid of. As God reveals himself to us, he will call us to forsake certain things. He will call us to run to the Lord Jesus, the only one who can purify us. Jacob called the people to purify themselves. Hebrews 9.22, referring to Leviticus, says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It is Jesus Christ, his cross, which makes perfect and complete purification possible. There can be no true Christian worship without the cross of Christ. It's Christ alone. We cannot worship without going through the cross. I mean, let's be honest. What do you and I have to really offer the God who created out of nothing? So we run with confidence in and through the Lord Jesus to the Lord. We bow prostrate before him. You and I can have confidence that our worship is in spirit and truth as we run through the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have never come to the Lord Jesus in faith alone, friend, I plead with you to not harden your heart. Run to the Lord Jesus. By faith alone in Christ alone, you can be forgiven. You can know this purification. The guilt, the penalty of sin can be taken away from you all in and through the finished work of Jesus Christ. This is where worship must begin for the Christian. There's another thing we see in this passage that is, I've been around humans for 48 years and I am a human and five five other humans live in my home. There is the dirty word that we hate and it's called obedience. If we're going to worship in spirit and truth, we must be obedient people. And we see God's call to obedience. We may be tempted to think that obedience is not a significant part of worship. 
But God calls Jacob to go to Bethlehem, to dwell there, to build an altar. And I think one of the struggles we have, because we know the Bible teaches that we are made right and we are forgiven by faith alone, not by our obedience. We are tempted to think obedience isn't important. But friends, I want to remind you of what the Lord Jesus said in John 14, 15. If you love me, you obey me. You, you cannot say that you're worshiping the God of the Bible and have no desire to obey him. It, it just doesn't work that way. If you love me, you'll obey me. Friends, we obey what we worship because we worship what we love. So think about what you love. What you truly love is what you'll give yourself to. Think of just one command of the Lord Jesus. Love your enemy. How are you doing with that? But he sent the helper, the Holy Spirit. And because of the finished work of Jesus, you and I are forgiven. The Holy Spirit is deposited into our heart and life. We can love the impossible to love. And it's good for you to remember you, you might be that person to someone else. You ever think about that? Well, old Joe, he's a royal jerk. But you know, Joe may be saying the same thing about you. Maybe you're the impossible person to love in his life. Well, we forget that. And so a significant part of worship after we have come to faith in the God of the Bible alone is a call to obedience. Not for salvation. It's the Lord Jesus' obedience that makes our salvation possible. Obedience has been unpopular since the beginning of the Bible. Remember, Adam and Eve didn't even have ten commands. They had one. One. And so if you and I are going to worship in spirit and truth, we must understand that which the Lord Jesus has called us to, and in the power of the Spirit, by the grace of God, do it. We celebrate the 4th of July. Today is the 4th of July. One of the things as Americans we are tempted to worship is our freedom. Boy, did we not get pressed the last year. Ain't nobody telling me to do. I want my freedom back. I'm an American. You know, freedom is a blessing. You know, the greatest freedom we have as Christian, Christians is freedom from the tyranny of sin and its effects. And we worship the one who provides that. And we thank God for the freedom we have in this country. Not a prophet, not a son of a prophet, but it's probably going to go away in our lifetime. At least some of our lifetime. So if we're focused on that and not the freedom that comes from the Lord Jesus, we will be greatly disappointed. And some of us have been last year. Because we're so, when do I get my freedom back? It's like, did the Lord Jesus change? Because we still have freedom from sin in Him. So we must continually pursue and fight for this in our minds. 
We worship the God who gives freedom from sin, and we are thankful for the freedom that we have in this country, knowing the freedom we have in this country is not eternal. But the freedom that we have from the tyranny of sin is eternal in and through the Lord Jesus. He's the one we worship. There's a lot of debate in the church of like, you know, should we do patrioticals and whatever? And I remember in seminary, there was a guy from Singapore. And I've noticed a lot of people, they're smart from other countries. They're not like Americans. They don't, they're not loudmouths. But when they say something, you should listen. And I remember this guy saying, what unites us is the cross. That's what unites us. This is really interesting, and I'm just going to briefly, briefly mention this. But in verse 5, it says, As they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. This is so interesting. The outsiders, the unbelievers, are watching Jacob and his family, and they are afraid. Well, you see this a little bit in the book of Acts. Now, I'm not at all suggesting if we are faithful worshipers, the world's going to be afraid of us. Because we can see throughout the scripture that God's people are persecuted. Certainly they they are today in other countries. But sometimes there's something that the Lord does to protect his people and actually bringing a fear over unbelievers. And I think that's really fascinating. There's many ways in which the Lord protects us. And this is one of the ways he protected his people. We see a call to remember, verse 11, and God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Sounds a lot like the Abrahamic covenant. And God keeps reminding his people of his promises all over. One of the reasons we take communion is why the Lord Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. One of the reasons we celebrate the ordinance of baptism is it's a reminder of the gospel. You see this all over in the Old Testament, monuments and so on. And and we don't do monuments maybe the way they did in the Old Testament, but God has always called his people to remember, to remember when he took them out of bondage in Egypt. But all that pointing to the redemption that's found in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. A very, very important part of our worship is remembering God's redemptive work through history in our own life. You know, I think of what God redeemed me from. I was a train wreck. And if you know the Lord Jesus, you know where you were headed. And God sucked you out of the muck and mire by his grace. Don't ever get over that. Don't ever forget what the Lord Jesus has done. Worship has to do with real life. We continue to see descendants come and go. We see Rachel dies, Benjamin is born, Isaac dies, life goes on. People are born, people are dying, generations come and go. But God always calls his people to worship by remembering him, by obeying him. Worship truly has to do with real life. As we kind of wrap this up, let's go back to the New Testament of John 4 and Jesus' words. In John 4, the hour is coming. If you have not studied this passage in a long time, John 4 is one of the most beautiful pictures of worship. 
You have the Lord Jesus having a very interesting conversation with culturally a woman he should never have been having a conversation with. He's teaching this woman who is an absolute train wreck all about worship that his disciples didn't even understand. It's a fascinating passage. And so right in the middle of that, we have Jesus's words who says the hour is coming and now is here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. This passage is summed very well in an article that I found on Desiring God that pulls the quote that I first mentioned and adds some additional helpful words. Listen to this. The first thing we learn is that worship has to do with real life. It's not a mythical interlude in a week of reality. Together, the words spirit and truth mean that real worship comes from the spirit within and is based on true views of God. Worship must have heart and worship must have head. Worship must engage your emotions and worship must engage your thoughts. Truth without emotion produces dead orthodoxy and a church full of unspiritual fighters. Emotion without truth produces empty frenzy and cultivates flaky people who reject the discipline of rigorous thought. True worship comes from people who are deeply emotional and who love deep and sound doctrine. That's awesome. Friend, if you want to worship in spirit and truth, you need to know God of the Bible. Period. And the only way you're going to do that is to get into the word. I've met a lot of people that make excuse for their sin, and what they'll say is things like, well, my God is okay with this. And I try to gently say, okay, but that's not the God of the Bible. I try not to be a jerk about it, but it's like, you can't say you're worshiping the God of the Bible and living your life juxtaposed to what he said. It doesn't work that way. Now, you might struggle, we all do, but you can't forsake that which the Lord has said is true about his character and his calling on his people and say you're worshiping the God of the Bible. So we must know this God of the scriptures. For those of us that are New Englanders, we, we pride ourselves on being stoic. You know, not much rattles me. And yet we'll sit in front of a box with guys running out with a ball and get more excited about that than we will the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not advocating we come in here next week with flags and banners and running around. But if your emotions are not at all moved by the gospel, something's amiss. One of my favorite things to do, because I'm not a particularly great singer, is I love to be with God's people singing and hearing those truths sung into my heart. And there's lots of times I can't even finish the song because the Lord Jesus moves me to emotions because my friends, my brothers and sisters are reminding me of the beauty of Jesus Christ. Friends, if that never happens to you, if you never read your Bible and are called to be moved by any sort of emotion, something's wrong. If we get more excited about the latest sports thing, how the stock market's doing, our latest stimulus checks, something's wrong. Again, I am not advocating for some sort of like chaos on Sunday morning. But there should be times 
that when we have a true encounter with God in His Word, that we're mesmerized by His beauty and who He is. I'll be honest, I've been struggling through our Bible reading plan a lot. Um, You know, kind of checking the box someday. But I'll tell you, there'll be sometimes the Holy Spirit will meet me and I'll hear that truth. And I'll just pause. And I'll think about that all day long. This week, Isaiah 65. Isaiah talks about the new heavens and new earth. I can't wait for heaven. You know, there's a lot of great things about living on this earth. But Monday's always coming. Stuff's always breaking. People are always ticked off. It's not going to be like that in heaven. You know, you and I in heaven will never have a bad attitude again. Isn't that awesome? We'll never have to apologize to our spouse again. Because we'll be in the perfect presence of God where sin is completely eradicated. And so when I got to Isaiah 65 this week, and uh, I've been actually doing a lot of the Bible reading listening on my um, Bible Gateway app, and I stopped in Isaiah 65 and thought about heaven for a while. I was just moved. The beauty of what the Lord Jesus has gone ahead and prepared for us. If you're never moved by spiritual things, something's amiss. Again, this isn't something that I muster up in myself. God reveals himself to me through his word. He reveals himself to you through his word. And if you're never in his word, he's not going to be revealing stuff to you. And you're going to have all kinds of cloudy ideas about all kinds of things, specifically worship. And this also means sometimes you and I have to be corrected of wrong views of God. Yeah, I'll never forget the day leaving church one day. I had preached a hard message and this individual said, God never disciplines us. He's not like that. And I was like, well, that's what the Bible says. And this lady's like, I don't care. See, she's not worshiping. I'm not saying she's not a Christian, but she can't worship in spirit and truth. She's rejecting something that God has clearly said in his word. And so we, if we're to be people that the Lord Jesus instructs to worship in spirit and truth, it will take true knowledge of the God of the Bible. And it will affect our affections, our emotions. Friend, if you want to worship in spirit and truth, you must know the God of the Bible. And it takes a posture of ongoing brokenness, submission, and humility. And friends, that can be painful. You know how like when for several days you've just been a jerk? And you've justified it. And God cuts you down. And it's painful, but it's good. See, if we are going to be true worshipers, our posture must be one of submission and humility. But not just some sort of beat down people. But people who always, always, always receive the grace of God when we humble ourselves before him. I know of no passage in the Bible that says that anyone who ever came to the Lord in humility didn't receive his grace. That's amazing. These people, these patriarchs, quite frankly, I don't think they deserve God's grace. They, They continually did the wrong thing. And yet God didn't say, done. Go to hell. That's not what he said. 
He continued to remind him, I'm the God Almighty. I'm the one that's with you. I'm the one that will bless you. In me, all good things are found. But he does the same thing to you and I. He says that in his word. Worship is so important. And worship isn't an hour on Sunday morning. It's everyday life. It's in the mundane. Worship in spirit and truth includes God's revelation, the Bible. So true worshipers must be word-saturated. In the scriptures, we have an encounter with God and we know what to remember. We know how to worship. And this includes a call to obedience. And friends, it's joyful obedience. Because it's in view of the mercy of God. I have the privilege to serve and worship and submit to the one who suffered and died so that I could be forgiven and have the hope of new life, the promise of heaven. This isn't some evil, mean taskmaster. This is the God of all mercy and hope and goodness. The God who created out of nothing and promises good to his people. All our worship today on this side of the cross must be saturated in the person and work of Christ. Yes, the blood, forgiveness, hope, new life, a family, a future, a message to proclaim. Friends, if you are a person who have come to faith in the Lord Jesus, God promises I will be with you. Come, let us worship him, Christ, alone. Father, I thank you that you're so kind and gracious. You've called us out. You've set our feet on the rock. And you have always told your people, I am with you. I love you. I am for you. God, I pray that we would grow in our worship. That we'd worship in spirit and truth. That, that our worship would be informed with truth, not feelings. And yet that truth would revolutionize our feelings. That our emotions would be impacted by truth. And Lord, that we never overlook either one of them. And that we would grow in our posture of humility. And that you would turn our gaze to things above. And that we would love you well. And that we would be equipped to go to a world that is worshiping so many other non-eternal things. God, help us to constantly be doing business with the idols in our life. Help us to be laser-focused on the Lord Jesus. Pray that we'd be in a humble posture when a good-intentioned brother or sister comes alongside, that we, we would consider that they are trying to help us, not criticize us. And Lord, I thank you that you have redeemed a people for yourself to worship you in eternity. Lord, today is just a very, very small dress rehearsal of eternity. And I pray that we would worship you in spirit and truth well as we look forward to eternal worship that is in the perfect presence of God where there is no more sin, no more suffering. And until that day, Lord Jesus, please help us to be faithful. We ask this in your name, for your glory, and for the good of others, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.